Welcome to Big Thinkers, Big Ideas. I'm Dr. Carla O'Dell, CEO of APQC, and in this series, I get to interview some of the most interesting people in the world. So today, I'm going to be talking to Dr. Chip Heath. Chip is a professor at Stanford Graduate School of Business, and he teaches courses in business strategy and organizations. You may know him because he's the co-author, along with his brother Dan Heath, of three best-selling books. Their latest book, Decisive, How to Make Better Decisions in Life and Work, was published in the spring of 2013 and debuted at number one on the Wall Street Journal bestseller list and number two on the New York Times. Chip has also consulted with clients ranging from Google and Gap to the Nature Conservancy and the American Heart Association. We have been lucky at APQC because Chip has keynoted twice for us at our annual knowledge management conferences, once in 2012 and once in 2014, and our knowledge management advanced working group was lucky enough to get to be in some early workshops when Chip was developing Decisive. So this is a great opportunity to catch up with you, Chip. Thanks for joining us today. Thanks for having me. So, Chip, you and Dan are able to take these complex cognitive and management challenges, such as creating compelling and memorable arguments in your book, Made to Stick, which was the first bestseller, uh, helping people and organizations navigate change and switch, how to change when change is hard, which was your second bestseller, and then most recently in your newest book, Decisive helping us make all make better decisions. So let's start with decisive. So, Chip, why don't we make better decisions? Well, psychologists have, have spent a number of years now studying the biases that we have as individuals, just the way that our brains work. We don't always make the best decisions. And in fact, Daniel Kahneman, one of the founders of the field, won the Nobel Prize back in 2006, which economists don't typically give out to non, non-economists. Danny Kahneman is a psychologist because the research he did it was so transformational in our understanding of how close we can get to the rational idea that they talk about in economics. And what psychologists have found is that there are a number of just basic ways that we think about the world that lead us to make the wrong conclusions in a lot of cases. So one of them, for example, is that we frame decisions fairly narrowly. The typical person who's making a decision thinks of one alternative when they're making that decision. In this phenomenon was initially documented with teenagers, um, finding that 71% of the time when they're making a decision of you know, whether I should go to the basketball game or the, the dance, they're, they're really not thinking about the basketball game or the dance. They're thinking about, should I go to the basketball game or not? So it's a whether or not decision. And 71% of the time they're making that decision that way. Um, what, what was amazing is later on they did some research on adults running major organizations, business organizations, and nonprofits, and they found that 72% of the time the adults making the strategic decisions were making whether or not decisions. So the teens were actually doing 1% better than the adults. <laughs> so the, give, not giving yourself some uh, multiple options, how can we do that? How can we think more broadly? Any tips on doing that? Well, I, I think... I think the major trick is just to force yourself to come up with that second alternative. So it's generally not hard to hard to think of once we discipline ourselves to do it. In fact, one of the the best tricks that we've learned in making decisions is just to to do what we call the vanishing options test. Is to think to myself, what if the option I'm thinking about right now just went away, just disappeared? What else would I do? And very often when, when you do that simple exercise, you come up with something better within five minutes. But 
when you don't force yourself to do that, your mental spotlight just keeps focusing on that one option and thinking about whether or not I should do that thing. And it's kind of striking when we do this vanishing options test with people. About 80% of the time, within three minutes, they've come up with something much better than they had initially thought about. But they may have been agonizing for weeks before they, they did the vanishing options test. That's a great example. The other one that occurs to me is one that you've brought up before to me, which is to get someone else's point of view about what options might be. We're all so narrow. We think our our view of the world and the way we perceive it and whatever filters we have are true and the only ones. I, I really like the idea of seeking out other points of view, too, and I think you, your book has really got a lot of ideas about that. Well, and the nice thing about the, the kinds of conferences that you put on with people involved in knowledge management is you get a built-in cohort of people that attend the same conferences and go to the same workshops that you can reach out to for, for good advice and looking for somebody with a similar dilemma but from a different industry or a different segment of the world. They often have very different ideas that are standard in their company or their industry but that just wouldn't have occurred to us at first. That's a great example. They we're always surprised when they tell us the best thing they got out of the conference. Uh, of course, you and I like to think it's the keynote speakers, but you know they'll say that was fabulous, and I got to you know meet seven other people that I can talk to about how they do things. So yeah, the breaks are always a big hit at the conferences. Yeah, right, exactly, and especially if you create an environment where people feel comfortable doing that, where the purpose of the whole event is to learn from somebody else. I think it sets the stage for that. The, um, one of the things I notice about making decisions in organizations is that it's very similar to the ones that I have trouble with as an individual, which is anything that requires me to let go of something or that has loss involved in it. Like in an organization, it could be letting go of a product line or a project or a division or a failing employee, letting them go, or letting go of a project that I've invested so much in, but it doesn't seem to be going anywhere. Um, the, you know, in our personal lives, it's job loss and divorce, or should I move? Why are these so hard, and what can we do to help us make better decisions, maybe sooner? I think it's a good observation. There's a, there's a very basic principle that psychologists talk about called loss aversion, and the insight is that losses are from two to four times more painful to our brains than equivalent gains are pleasurable. And one of the best ways of seeing this is a, a study that they conducted many different times in many universities. You walk into a, a classroom at a university and you put down a coffee mug on every other desk, just kind of at random, and the coffee mug has the logo of the university that you're doing the experiment at. And you let people sit there for a while, you know, they, they spend a lecture, some people in the class have a coffee mug in front of them and some people don't have a coffee mug and you tell everybody when you're handing out the coffee mugs, look, everybody's going to have a chance today to walk away from this class with either a coffee mug or some money that makes them just as happy. And and so you spend an hour, the professor gives a lecture and then you come back to him at the end of the hour and you say to the people that haven't gotten the coffee mug, what sum of money would leave you just as happy right now as walking away with that coffee mug? And the answer is, and they, and they do this very, very carefully because they're economists and they want to make sure that nobody has an incentive to distort their price. So there's a very elaborate licitation procedure to make sure that they're telling 
as precisely as possible the value of the mug? And the answer is if you don't have a coffee mug, it's worth on average about $3.12 to you. You'd be just as happy if you walked away with $3.12. And, and then you turn to the people who have the coffee mug and you ask them the same question. Now, notice that the people that have the coffee mug are in the position not of saying, how much would I value to gain the coffee mug, but how much would I dislike losing my coffee mug? And their answer is, that's $7.52. <laughs> and, and I think that, that discrepancy between the $7 of pain it cost me to give out my coffee mug and the 3 bucks of pleasure it, it gains me to get a coffee mug, I think that's very symbolic of lots of trade-offs in life. Because very often whenever we, we have a change situation, very often whenever we're, we're going into a new situation at work, we're having to give up something in order to get something that hopefully is better. But empirically, the thing that's coming has to be, you know, two to four times as good in order for us to even start to get in the, in the ballpark of something that we're not going to regret, uh, regret having the loss. And I think loss aversion is a, is a recipe for lots of, lots of problems in personal life and professional life. And in cleaning out your closets. Yeah. Now, ever since I read Decisive and that research, I asked myself, if I didn't have this and somebody wanted to give it to me, would I take it? That's and, great. And if the answer is no, then it goes out. Or going back to the one about the the uh, not have you know framing too narrowly, do I really need to keep the broken coffee maker, or is it just the pot that I yeah. want to back up? I mean, you know, there's all kinds of things like that. But the, I'll tell you, getting rid of stuff if I didn't have it. Well, and somebody tried to give it to me, would I take it? If the answer is no or even maybe, out it goes. It's a huge difference in your will, uh, my ability to let go anyway. Yeah, that's a, that's a great – it would simplify garage sale pricing all over America if people actually thought about <laughs> not how painful would it be to give this up, but how much pleasure would I get from getting it at this moment. Uh, right, and the answer, especially since you lugged it out to the driveway, is probably a lot of pleasure giving it up. So if you is that you know is there one cognitive bias or omission that you or Kahneman think is undermines our decision making the most or is it a whole series of them what do you think if we had to if we just wanted to work on one self improvement what would it be I think the simplest the simplest one self improvement is the adding an additional option I think that's really powerful and and addresses one of the key biases. I think probably the biggest bias is actually one of the harder ones to, to change, and that is confirmation bias. And confirmation bias says that basically when we go into a situation, we're collecting data about uh, an option or about something that we might do or consider in the world. Our, our tendency is to collect data in a way that's biased by the hypothesis that we walk in in the first place. So if we love Thai food restaurants and a new Thai food place comes to town, we may sample the reviews, and we feel like we're sampling them even-handedly, but in actuality across lots of experiments that have looked at this kind of thing, we're about twice as likely to read a four-star review as a two-star review because we really want this place to be good. And, and that's not a, maybe a big deal for Thai food, but you know, think of smokers back in the 1960s when it wasn't as blatantly obvious as it is today that smoking is linked to lung cancer. If you bring smokers into a lab in the 1960s 
and you give them a stack of newspaper articles they can browse during the experiment, and one of them happens to read, smoking found correlated with lung cancer. And then another group of smokers walks in with the same set of articles, except the one about smoking is replaced with an article that says, the headline says, smoking not correlated with lung cancer. Which do you think the smokers were more likely to pull from the stack and read with glee? Well, that's the one that, that smoking is not correlated with lung cancer. And it turns out they're twice as likely to pick up that article as the first one. And, and that's a bias in a serious domain with serious health consequences. And it's, it's really, confirmation bias is really important, but in contrast with, you know, coming up with an additional option to widen your options, coming up with a way of kind of getting away from the confirmation bias is, is extraordinarily difficult. Uh, and one trick is to, to learn to ask disconfirming questions. That's what we try to teach our PhD students in the social sciences to do. It's like, you have a hypothesis about what's going on here, but we want you to test the idea that the opposite of your hypothesis is true. And that's, that's okay, but it takes a lot of years of training to learn to start to do that. And, and very often, even in the science situation, people aren't very good at asking the disconfirming questions themselves. So another, another great repair is to, is to have, have a spouse or kids because they're, they're kind of designed to ask the disconfirming questions, whatever our bright idea is. And, and in the workplace context, we can do that with each other. It's like, you know, yeah, there are reasons for doing this merger, but what are the reasons to not do this merger? And, of course, the problem in organizations is even though those disconfirming questions are useful in making a good decision, they also make us look like less of a team player. And it's not clear that all CEOs in the world are very excited when somebody raises a counterexample or a counterargument to the merger that they're really excited about. And so, so I think confirmation bias may be even more important than, than the narrow framing, the narrow list of options that we talked about earlier. But I think it's very hard personally and socially to come up with repairs for it. Yeah, for the confirmation bias, I think it's the, the, certainly the most dangerous and negative one on the history of the planet, in my point of view. But um, one note thing I have noticed on asking disconfirming questions in organizations, Chip, that can make it easier, certainly has at APQC, is we legitimize the process. Okay, now in this decision is when we ask disconfirming questions or we do a pre-mortem of everything that went wrong. And it's part of the process as opposed to somebody having the unenviable and usually non-productive role of being a devil's advocate. Yeah, and the, the devil's advocate is, is actually an interesting thing. I had always heard people talking about the term, but what I didn't realize until we sat down to do the research on decisive is that that's actually a formal position within the Catholic Church. And so there, there is a devil's advocate in the process of canonizing saints, and the devil's advocate is supposed to be in charge of arguing that the person who's being considered for sainthood was actually not a saint. And you want to talk about a difficult argument to make. I mean, nobody, nobody gets far along in the process of canonization for being a saint because they're a bad person. So these are wonderful people, and it's got to be really hard to argue against any of these people being saints. And yet that was a formal role in the Catholic Church, very regarded as a very important part of the process for several hundred years. Uh, John Paul II, I think, was, was the one who took that role away out of the official procedure, and canonization rates shot up after that. But, 
but I think what's what's nice about the name for the devil's advocate in the Catholic Church is that this person who's objecting to the sainthood is is not a curmudgeon, is not cantankerous. It is a part of the process, and in fact, that part of the process is known as the promoter of the faith, the defender of the faith. And and I think that's a good a good piece of logic to carry over to organizations is when somebody's doing us the favor as a senior leadership team or as an individual of arguing against the decision that we're about to make to make sure that we've got great arguments on the positive side, that person is defending the faith. They're defending the brand. They're defending the company. And and we don't want to regard them as stick-in-the-mud curmudgeons because that's that's not only a role that's formal, it's a really important role. Chip, I'd like to circle back to one of your earlier books. In fact, it was a middle book, which is Switch, uh, How to Change When Change is Hard. You know, we've been talking about the confirmation bias and loss aversion and asking for disconfirmation and how painful those are emotionally to us uh, to do that. It is uncomfortable to listen to another point of view or somebody tell you why your idea won't work. A lot of Switch was about helping us make change when it didn't feel good. Uh, talk about that. Let's see what kind of advice you could give us as knowledge management professionals and as people on this issue. Well, the, the fundamental metaphor that we used in Switch is a metaphor by a modern psychologist, Jonathan Haidt, and he's, he's trying to grapple with this tension that has been noted for thousands of years uh, between the analytical sides of our brains and the emotional sides of our brains. So the analytical side can say, you know, I want a better beach body come summer. But the emotional side opens up the cupboard and sees the, sees the Oreo cookies. And that side really wants an Oreo cookie. And, and the same thing happens whenever we're, we're trying to make a change in a routine or procedure at work. I mean, our analytical side can tell us this is the right thing to do. It's the right thing for our, for our customers, for our patients. It's the right thing to do for our cost structure. But an emotional side is in love with the comfort and the confidence of the existing routine. And Jonathan Haidt's metaphor for that is that that emotional side is like an elephant, and that elephant is being ridden by a tiny human rider that represents the analytical side of our brain. And what I love about Jonathan Haidt's metaphor is that the, the entire history of people have been thinking about this for thousands of years, but he's the only one that gets the relative weight classes right about these two sides of ourselves. That emotional side is, is several tons larger than the analytical side. And what I think that says to us in terms of making decisions is all the emotional things that we've talked about, the loss of version, the and not wanting to disconfirm our ideas, that we've got to take steps to address that or to circumvent that emotional side if we're going to have a chance of succeeding and making change. And so one of the principles that's, that's strikingly parallel between what we found about change and what we found about decisions is experimenting your way into a new situation is often very good both for making better decisions and for, for taming that elephant side. So so the elephant's always afraid of loss or afraid of change. But if you do a little experiment, you say, well, what if we do a little bit of this? Does that look better? All of a sudden, the emotional side of ourselves can start recognizing, oh, this is not a big deal. We can take one step in that direction. Look, wow, we get some benefits from that. And so, so I think one of the tricks of making good decisions is what we call in the book, ooching our way into decisions. And we borrowed that phrase from a, 
from a company called National Instruments. That's kind of the Apple computer of, of measurement devices. They make hardware and software that work really well together. And they're constantly in the position of thinking about how do we add to our platform, our hardware, software integration platform, you know, what components do we add? What new features do we add? And they talk about ooching their way, experimenting their way into a new domain. And I think that both that both makes for better decisions, but it also reduces that anxiety that the elephant emotional side of ourselves feels when confronted with the need to change. I, I love ooching. We've adopted it here in the management team at APQC, and we, the other, we call it ooching based on the book, but we also talk about it as let's throw a bunch of stuff against the wall and see what sticks. Yeah, that's perfect. Yeah, and and it's it's less risky. Plus, you play to the part of you that already owns it. You know, if you can put a bunch of ideas up there, you already kind of own all of those. And so, you if you have a bunch of them, you're not too wedded to any one, but you kind of like them all. So, it takes the uh, percentage weight a little. The elephant loses a few pounds anyway. That's right. Being uh, attached to what we've already done. I have. Why do you think, Chip, that these ideas of, uh, you know, adopting what we've learned from the cognitive sciences and neurosciences, why those have begun to get traction in business? It just seems like we're having a decade, you know, where that is really of interest. And I think you and Dan have had a lot to do with that. But do you have anything, any other sense of why would we have this uh, more openness in organizations and among leaders to looking at these um these kind of hardwired problems we've got as human beings. I think there's just a conversation that had been going on in the academic literature for for 40 years, basically. Um, started in the 70s, the field of decision making in psychology became prominent, and behavioral economics started up. Um, and and when Danny Kahneman won the Nobel Prize in 2006, it was kind of a culmination for the field of you know we have the recognition that what we've been doing is as important as we thought that it was all these years. But even that, I think, was just on the periphery of the business world. And so Danny Kahneman's done a great job with his status as Nobel Prize winner. He wrote a book called Sinking Fast and Slow that every one of your listeners ought to get and, and read. And it's it's a book written by Nobel Prize winner, but it's very accessible. It's very fun to read. And it's profound frontline research talked about in a way that we can incorporate it in our lives and in our workplaces. And so I think he started the trend for for thinking about, you know, how do we take these ideas from the research context and, and farm them out to people in their work organizations and, and work through things. Danny Ariely has done a great job with Predictably Irrational. Uh, Dan and I chimed in with Decisive because we were wanting to think about not only what are the problems, but what are the potential solutions that people have come up with. And so I think that conversation is just starting to make it from the academic research literature into the, the mainstream literature. And it's, it's actually gratifying to hear that, that it's starting to make some progress. Um, you have a great view of lots of organizations and lots of companies, and so it's good to hear that people across the, across the board that you know are taking these ideas seriously. And we're advocating it strongly because we believe they do make a difference and they're a fresh lens to look at old problems with. And for the, a lot of business people who didn't major in psychology and who don't worship Daniel Kahneman as I do, this is new information for them. So, yeah, and, and that 
and the potential gains are just so large and the the costs are kind of tiny i mean we work really hard in business to drive out drive out errors in our production process from materials problems or from from doing the the right thing not as consistently as we should do and and yet you know when a factory is is on its way to six sigma quality that means they're making mistakes in one out of every 250,000 trials right so that's how good we've gotten on the front lines with routines and procedures but you ask a group of top leaders from global 500 organizations how are the decisions in your organization and about half will say we make as many mistakes as we do correct decisions. That's a, that's a shocking statistic because it's saying on the front lines we're batting one in 250,000 errors, but at the top where decisions involve hundreds of, you know, tens of millions of dollars, we're, we're batting 50-50. And th- that's not a good situation. And so there's, there's an asymmetrical payoff, I think, for, for getting the top-level decisions in better shape. Well, if there's anybody uh, to that, I would add to that pantheon of folks who've really made a difference, it's it's you and Dan. I mean, I think just to tell you one of my takeaways or a couple of from this call is that if we want to get 30% or better at making decisions, just add another option. Just widen your options. Yeah. That's number one. And number two since we're going to make mistakes and we aren't sure what's what's going to work, we only have data about the past, not the future, ooch, do tiny experiments um, and see what happens. And then you have less at risk and more opportunities to learn from more choices. I think this really makes a difference for knowledge management professionals who think they have to stake their whole reputation on and their whole program on a particular uh, approach or a particular software not necessary to do that. Ooch and widen your options. Well, that's all the time we have today, Dan. Thank you. I mean, Chip, thank you so much for joining us. This has been a great conversation. Uh, and to our listeners and readers, if you would like to learn more about APQC, please go to our website, www.apqc.org. Thanks for listening and have a great day.